Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our Friday series with James Jordan in the book of Haggai, and here he'll be continuing his thoughts on Haggai 2, 1-9. through If you have not already, we strongly encourage you to download the Theopolis app. There's a ton of content on that app, both free and behind a subscription wall. And most recently, we released Peter Lightheart's 15 lecture series on Paul and Pauline theology, which is the intensive course that we had back in the month of March. So for that app, I've provided a link down there in the show notes, or you can head to your app store and sign up for an account there. And as always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here's James Jordan discussing the book of Haggai. Last week, we went in a lot of detail over the background of Haggai chapter 2, and doubtless many of you were lost in the details. And so I'd like to review this morning to start with and complete the lesson that we began, because this passage in Haggai 2, verses 1 to 9, is in the middle of something that starts at the beginning of the Bible and ends at the end of the Bible. In order to understand it and to draw uh, proper applications from it, we needed to get the whole picture. When Israel was in Egypt, if you'll remember, God provoked a confrontation with Pharaoh, and he didn't provoke the confrontation over taxes, he didn't provoke the confrontation over politics or over slavery or over any number of very choice topics that he could have provoked a confrontation over. No, God provoked the confrontation over worship. God told Pharaoh, let my people go a three-day journey into the wilderness that they may engage in public, corporate, formal worship. That was the issue. Everything else flowed from that. Pharaoh knew that. Pharaoh knew that if he let them worship their God, he would have to let the culture grow out of that worship, because culture grows out of worship. We'll talk a little bit more about that this morning if we have time. And you'll remember that God gave Israel a sign that he was with them. He said, this is how you'll know that I am with you. The sign was that they would indeed come out of Egypt and worship him. So the sign that God was with them and in their midst was that they would come out and worship him. Now, the worship of God is at a particular time and place. The worship of God, special formal worship, is at a particular time and place. Now, that's just kind of obvious, but we need to think about that. You have to stop what you're normally doing and come together as a community and engage in special worship. There has to be a place that people come to. There has to be a time set aside for that worship. Now, what that gives you is a house of God and a Sabbath time. Now, unless you're engaged in continual worship and don't have anything else to do, there are going to have to be times and places set aside for worship. And so, when they came out of Egypt, God gave them Sabbath laws and instructions on building the house of God. And remember that we saw that these things were mixed together in the same passage, that they go together, the time and the place of worship, the laws given for both of those things occur in the same passages. A house of prayer. Sometimes it's said that the tabernacle and the temple were the throne room of God, which is true, enthroned above the cherubim. But preeminently, it is a house of prayer. Preeminently, it's not the headquarters of the theocracy. Preeminently, it's the place of special worship. 
And the Holy Spirit inspired two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, for the work of overseeing the construction of the house of God. So you have them coming out of Egypt, the sign that God is in their midst, the Holy Spirit in their midst. They build the house of God, and at the special time and place, they engage in special worship. And then we saw that God set up a series of feasts and festivals in the Old Testament. And that the great worship festival was in the seventh month, corresponding to the seventh day, you see. And that was the Feast of Tabernacles. The seventh month was packed with worship activity, starting with the Feast of Trumpets on the first day, moving to the Day of Atonement on the tenth day, and finally the Feast of Tabernacles, which lasted eight days, longer than any other festival in the Old Testament period. And the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles fulfilled God's promise to Israel in a particular way. Remember the promise is, when you come out, you'll engage in worship. You'll have a house to worship in, and my spirit will be in your midst. And at the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, you have to get a picture in your mind of everybody dwelling in their own individual leafy booth, and then in the middle, God in his tabernacle. And so God in their midst, surrounded by all the individual tabernacles, each family with its own individual tabernacle, right? Now, what's the fulfillment of that? Well, in St. John chapter 1, we read, The Word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. Literally. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or more literally, dwell is to pitch a tent to tabernacle in our midst. So right away in the first chapter of John, you get a picture of all the people in their individual tabernacles, and then Christ coming and being in their midst in the tabernacle. So the picture made in the Feast of Booths of God's tabernacle in the midst of all the people's tabernacles is fulfilled when Christ comes and tabernacles among us. Is there anything of an Edenic theme in this? Yes, because the booths are made of leafy trees, and it points back to the Garden of Eden environment. We'll come more to that in a moment. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles also pointed to the ingathering of all the nations of the world. It did so in two ways. First of all, it was the time when the tithes were taken up. In the New Testament, we're told to lay aside each Lord's Day on the first day of the week. That is, if you're paid on a salary basis. Now, if you take in money once a year because you're an agriculturalist or a newsletter seller or something like that, then you may tithe on an annual basis. But the tithe was taken up at the Feast of Tabernacles. And that predicted that there would come a time when all the nations of the world would come up to the Feast of Tabernacles and pay a tithe. Plus, 70 bulls were sacrificed for the 70 nations of the world because Israel mediated between God and the nations. And then third, the Feast of Tabernacles was a sign of God in their midst at the Sabbath. The Feast of Tabernacles was a sign of the ingathering of all the nations of the world for the purpose of worship, giving the tithe, and third, it was a great Bible conference, a time of revival and covenant renewal, especially in the seventh year when the entire law was read and re-ratified by the people. And we also saw last time that the sign that the Spirit was in the midst of the people was the labor of cleansing in the tabernacle. Remember that in the tabernacle there was a bowl, tabernacle court area, there was a large bowl filled with water, and that was a labor of cleansing. Now that was a sign of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the people. And it cleansed the people from defilement. Now with that kind of a background, we can read over Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, because that is what the people of Israel would have been familiar with 
when Haggai came and prophesied to them. So let's read over and expound Haggai 2, verses 1 to 9. Then we'll go on and look at the New Testament and see how this is fulfilled. On the 21st day of the seventh month, that is the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, right before the eighth day. So we're really still in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Literally, its house. Who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Remember from chapter 1, we have a picture just like the Feast of Tabernacles. There's God's house in the middle, and then there are all the houses of the Israelites around that. And the problem is that the house of God had not been built and given preeminent honor in their midst. But the picture is again the same. It's as if you had analogous to that a group of Christians with Christ in their midst, and yet they were going about their own business and not giving him the preeminent glory. That's the sign. And so the word that's used here is house, to connect up the house of God with the houses of the people which were around the house of God. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, or be strong, literally. Be strong, Zerubbabel, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest and all you people of the land. Be strong, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. You'll find in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives strength to the people. And so in just a moment, we're going to have a reference to the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who enables them to be strong, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts to Zerubbabel in Zechariah 4. See, that phrase that you're very familiar with comes right out of this context. Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. Because it says in verse 5, As for the promise I made you when you came out of Egypt, my Spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Spirit is there to give them strength. The Spirit is there to inspire Bezalel and the Holy Ab to build the house of God. So the promise made when they came out of Egypt, you will worship me at the house of God. Promise is still good. My Spirit is there and you will build the house of God and worship me. For thus says the Lord of hosts, it is yet only a little while and I am going to be shaking the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And as a result of this, I will be shaking all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory. You bring the tithe up in the seventh month at the Feast of Tabernacles. The time is coming when I'm going to shake all the nations, and the tithe will come in from all the nations of the earth, and the house will be filled with glory. And the Lord can do this because, he says in verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. I've loaned it to the nations, but they're going to bring it back to me, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, declares the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, we understand that this will be fulfilled in Christ. Let's glance very briefly at Zechariah 14. That's just a few pages over. Zechariah 14, starting in verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went to war against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths or tabernacles, because that is the feast that talks about the nations of the world, right? 
So again we have the nations coming up to worship at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it will come to pass that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. They'll dry up. No spiritual blessings. No physical blessings. And if a family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then something equivalent will happen to them. Now, it doesn't rain in Egypt, so it doesn't matter if it rains on them or not. See, their land is watered by the Nile. But something equivalent will happen. The Bible doesn't say what, but their water will dry up as well. This will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And so again, the idea of the nations coming in. And then in verse 20, in that day, notice the word day here, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all whose sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. There will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. The word day in the Bible is important. It points to the Sabbath day or the time when the sun is out and the sun is shining. And so again, we're back to a connection between day or Sabbath day and house. And the time is going to come when the house is going to expand so greatly that every cooking utensil in the world will be acceptable for sacrificial purposes. And every day, or there will be a kind of a continual daytime in which there will be continual worship. Now, this sets us up for understanding the New Testament and what happens to the Feast of Booths and why we don't celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So let's look over to John chapter 7 and start in verse 14. This all happens at the Feast of Tabernacles, and so hopefully after two weeks we have in our minds a pretty good idea of what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. We can plug that in to understand what Jesus says and does at the Feast of Tabernacles. Start in verse 14 of John 7. And when it was now the midst of the Feast, that is of Tabernacles, according to verse 2, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Notice that the setting is in the temple which the Feast of Tabernacles has to do with, doesn't it? It has to do with the house of God in the midst of all the people. And he begins to teach because the Feast of Tabernacles was a big Bible conference, as we saw last time, time when the law of God was taught. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? That doesn't mean that they didn't think he had been educated at all. He'd been educated in the synagogue schools, like all Israelites, Israelite men at any rate. But he hadn't been to seminary. He wasn't a formally recognized Pharisee teacher. Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it's from God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Remember at the Feast of Tabernacles was a time of the exposition of the Mosaic Law. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And his teaching doesn't come from himself, it comes from God. Just as Moses got it from God, and yet they don't obey it. So what should have been a time of rejoicing, a time of celebration of the Law of God, has become a time of judgment to them because they don't obey, they don't hear. The multitude answered and said, You have a demon? Who seeks to kill you? 
Jesus answered and said to them, I have done one deed, and yet you all marvel. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but actually from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you're willing to circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Notice the connection here, the Sabbath day to the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles. Jesus brings it up, starts arguing about what the Sabbath means. Circumcision is a sign of healing, partial healing, but it represents the healing of the whole man. Are you angry that I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Not just circumcising him and making him partially well, but healing him entirely and making him wholly well. And did it on the Sabbath. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man's from. Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. We can't go into everything here. But then notice in verse 28, Jesus therefore cried out in the temple, again connecting this all to the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I'm from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. In other words, I have come into your midst. Feast of Tabernacles, the tabernacle in the midst of all the families. And Jesus is in their midst. He's been sent from God. He is the true temple. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the multitude believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ shall come, he's not going to do any more signs than these men has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to him who sent me, and you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews therefore said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Well, is he? Of course he is. That's exactly what he did. The ingathering of the nations. And they sense that perhaps... Given the meaning of the feast, Jesus is talking about going to the nations and bringing them in. And, of course, in the New Testament, you have exactly that movement. Paul is sent out to the Greeks, and the Greeks are brought in to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, that is, to draw near to the throne of God and worship him, and the Jews are cut off. Verse 36. What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now, here we're to where we want to be, verse 37 to 39. Now, on the last day... The great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now you'll remember that the promise was that God would be in their midst, and in the tabernacle, one of the signs of that was the bowl of water which represented the Holy Spirit. People had to come to the tabernacle and be cleansed. The water did not flow out to cleanse them. They had to come to it, centralized place. But in Ezekiel 47, remember, that labor is turned on its side and the water pours out. The throne of God is right in the center. And then on the right-hand side to the front is where the labor is. So the water comes from the side 
Well, that's the origin of the term paraclete with reference to the Holy Spirit, the one who comes from the side. It refers in part back to the temple and tabernacle where the Holy Spirit, the water, is located at the side of the throne. Now, of course, that architectural model actually goes back to the way things are in the Trinity itself. But you see, the references later on in John to the Holy Spirit is the one who comes from the side of the Father and the Son, paraclete, from the side. Para means side, beside. Has reference to this. The Holy Spirit is the river of living water. But, notice what it says. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And there really isn't much question but that this refers to the individual believers. So just as the water flows out of God's house, so it also flows out of the individual Christian's tabernacle or house. And that's because what's true of Christ is true of us. Now, we don't send the Holy Spirit in the full sense, but we do communicate the gospel, don't we? In Romans 10, it says, how shall I hear without a preacher? And the reference there really is to all believers because it refers back to Joel where it says, all will prophesy, your young men and your daughters, etc., will prophesy, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Context there in Romans where it says, how shall I hear without a preacher? One who communicates the gospel to others. So we send the Spirit to other people in a sense as we get it from Christ. And I referred you last time to Isaiah 58 verse 11, which speaks of each individual Christian as a Garden of Eden and the water flowing out. Now that tells us something about the Feast of Tabernacles. Where is the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, it's the people gathered around Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the people gathered their booths around Christ's booth. At this stage in history, the people are gathered around Jesus Christ as he stands on the earth. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, how about an hour stage of history? Well, where is Jesus specially present in our midst? Well, it's in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Reformed faith is sacramental. This is my body and this is my blood, he says, referring to his humanity. We'll get to this a little bit more in a minute if we have time. But that's where he is specially present. Calvin is always very strong to stress that Christ is king upon the throne in his humanity. It's a human being who is king of the world. And it's in his humanity that he comes and feeds us. We are genetically incorporated into Adam, humanity. We are sacramentally incorporated into the humanity of Christ. Now, the bread and wine don't change. Lutheranism and Catholicism say the bread and wine change into something else so that we have some type of literal cannibalism going on. We don't have that. And yet, in a way that transcends thought, it is an incorporation into Christ's humanity. And it's in his humanity that he's specially present with us at the Lord's Supper. Another way to put it is one of my theological professor said the reformed view of the sacrament is not so much that Christ comes down to earth to be present as that we are all taken up into the heavenly chamber to be present with him. You see that in the book of Revelation. John is caught up to heaven and he's present at the throne of God and of the Lamb. That is what special worship is. Normally we are not in the special presence of the humanity of Christ, but in special worship we are. And this is a memorial of him and he says, do this until I come. And we're going to get back to this in a few minutes. But I wanted to point out that that's how we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles today. Our tabernacles, our earthly houses, gathered around the house of 
Christ. By the way, one of the traditional terms for the bread and wine is house. You'd be interested to know that. Referred to as Christ's house. He pitches his house in the midst of our houses. Now, there's one other thing we need to pick up on, and that is this connection between the Sabbath day and the house of God. And we'll see that in Matthew chapter 12. Yes. Yeah, the Roman church still refers to it as a host, referring to the house aspect. But the Calvinists have also referred to it in the Old English as housel and other terms. Christ's house in our midst. Now turn to Matthew 12, and we come to this interesting connection between the Sabbath and the house of God. Which also helps us to understand how we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and how this Haggai passage applies to us today. In verse 1, Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. It is a prepare food. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break or profane the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Remember Haggai 2 has to do with building the greater temple. Here it is. Jesus Christ's body is the greater temple. Now, we are all part of that body. We are inserted into the humanity of Christ. We're in the humanity of Adam. Now we are reinserted sacramentally and uh, mystically into the humanity of Christ. Something greater than the temple is here, the body of Christ. If you'd known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, notice how in this passage the Sabbath is connected up with the house of God. And it's not easy to untangle. Because the question is, they accused him of Sabbath violation, and he answers them by saying it was okay for David to go into the house. He doesn't say it was okay for David to break the Sabbath. There's a parallel between their breaking the Sabbath, so to speak, and David going into the house where he wasn't supposed to go. In other words, the special time of worship and the special place of worship go together. We've seen that already. Now, to understand this, you have to get a picture of how the Bible models things. Jesus and the disciples are in the grain fields. Now, the reason that the grain field is parallel to the temple, because that's the whole temple of the world. They're out under the blue sky instead of in the tabernacle under that blue ceiling. Instead of the seven lamps of the lampstand giving light, they're out under the sun which gives light. But those two things are parallel to one another. The sun gives light and produces day. The lampstand keeps the inside of the temple in a continual daytime. Now, how do I know that? Well, I know it because in Genesis 1 it says God called the light day. So wherever you find light, that's day. Now, that's not the way we use the word day, and that produces confusion. 
People say, what kind of days are they in Genesis 1? Are they 24-hour days? Are they 1,000-year-long days? Are they 12-hour days? No, they're light days. God called the light day. You have to take into consideration when God defines the term, then he uses it his way. He stipulates a definition of the word day, and day is where light is. So inside the temple, that candelabra is burning all the time, which makes it continual daytime. Now, in the temple of the outside world, there's an alternation between daytime and nighttime. The sun is the lamp. In the heavenly Jerusalem, it's continual daytime because the glory of God makes the light shine and there's no more sun. We'll get to that. But day is where light is in the Bible. You've got to get that in your mind. Or you can't read and understand things. Day is where light is. And Christ is the light. Where Christ is, their day is. Okay? So, they are in the larger temple, in the grain field, and they eat. And that corresponds to David going into the smaller temple and eating. Now, how does that compare with the Sabbath? Well, Jesus says two things here. He says something greater than the temple is here. So wherever Jesus is, that's where the temple is. What made that grain field into a temporary temple was that the tabernacle, Jesus Christ, was in the middle of it. And that made all the ground holy ground, and that made it into a temple. See? Because Jesus was there. And Jesus says he is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, that's always one of the things people want to understand what that means. What does that mean? Well, the Son was given to rule the day. And it rules the day by being the thing that gives light. Now, Jesus says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. That means he's the light giver who rules the day. The sun is a picture of Christ many times in the Bible. As you know, from Psalm 19, the sun comes up and goes through the heavens in his chariot, speaks truth to everybody, so forth. So, son of righteousness arising with healing in his wings, reference to Christ. Where Christ is, that's where Sabbath is. That's the principle. Where Christ is, there the temple is. Where Christ is, there the Sabbath is. And if we were in Christ's presence all the time, we would be in Sabbath all the time. Now that's the connection. So, what does that mean? Well, is Christ with us all the time? Yes. Are we in continual temple? Yes. Are we in continual Sabbath? Yes. So the Sabbath day is gone. No. It doesn't follow. Because there's a distinction between the general presence of Christ and the special presence of Christ. And there's a distinction between the general temple presence of Christ and we're in his presence all the time and the particular or special presence that's connected with corporate worship. And that distinction means that we still keep the Sabbath. Let's look at some connections here, connections that people usually don't make. What is the special sign of Jesus' special presence? That's the Lord's Supper. We talked about that a moment ago. What does he say? He says, do this as a memorial to me. Now, how does the fourth commandment start? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does day mean? It means light. Remember the Sabbath light time to keep it holy. What makes it holy? That Christ is in the midst of it. Take Christ out of it and the day is not holy. You may take a nap on it, but it's not holy. 
Holy means where God is. It has to do with the presence of God. Remember, that is the Sabbath day is given as a memorial, and so is the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Connection there. Then he says, do it until I come. Paul says we do this until he comes. Well, if he's coming, that means he's not here. Right? Now, the people kept the Sabbath day in the Old Testament because Christ did not come, and it was a sign that he was coming. But he has come. But then he left again, didn't he? Now, we know that in a general sense, he's with us all the time, but in the special sense, he's not. There's special presence and there's special absence. Because there's special absence, we are not in continual Sabbath. Because there's special absence, we're not in continual temple. He's not with us most of the time, but there are times in which he is with us in the special sense, in his humanity. Thus, there remain special Sabbath times and special Sabbath places. Now, don't get confused about this. Because there's no longer any one centralized temple in the world, people say, well, okay, then wherever two or three are gathered, that's where Jesus is. So, there are no special places at all. Uh Uh-uh, that doesn't follow. The fact that there's not one special place doesn't logically lead to the conclusion that there's no special place. It can also lead to the conclusion that there are many special places, see. And where are the special places? Well, it's wherever the Lord's Supper is set up and the preaching of the word in connection with it. Uh, We have kind of a bipolar view of worship, uh, like an ellipse. You know, an ellipse has two centers, two focal points. Preaching of the word and making the word visible. There's one center, which is the word, and in two manifestations, verbal and visual manifestations of the word of God. Preaching in the sacrament. And wherever that is set up, that complex, that is the special place. And that creates a special time. And that's still the case. Now, look at Revelation 21, and let's see where we are. Where we are and when we are. Because this is the ultimate here. Revelation 21, 22 to 27. Talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. Okay? What's the temple? The presence of Christ. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and the lamp is the Lamb. Where does the light shine from? It shines from Christ. That's what creates daytime, pushes away nighttime. And sets up Sabbath time. Well, this light is shining all the time, which means it is in continual Sabbath. And the Lamb is there all the time, which means that in the city there's continual temple. All right? Just like in the tabernacle, the light was shining all the time, so it was continual Sabbath inside there. You couldn't go in there without being holy. When the priest was inside there, it was continual Sabbath. That's why when David went into the temple, he was entering into Sabbath time. Because inside there, it was always Sabbath time. Outside, it was Sabbath time, one seven days, plus some other days. But inside, where that light was shining all the time, it was continual Sabbath time. So when David went in there, he was invading Sabbath time and profaning Sabbath time. That's the connection. Now, in the heavenly Jerusalem, it's continual Sabbath time and continual temple space. The nations, verse 24, shall walk by its light. The kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Sound like the Feast of Tabernacles? Sure. We're in the tabernacle language here. And in the daytime, for there will be no night there, so continual light, 
Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, like David, who had no business going in there, in one sense, and no one who practices abomination and lying. David was unclean because he had blood on his hands. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will come into it. Now, we can make it all real simple by saying, ah, that's the way it's going to be in the resurrection. But the reality is that the heavenly Jerusalem is now. This is it. So the question is, how do we apply this? And the way we apply it is, when Christ comes into our midst, that's where the heavenly Jerusalem is. That's the light shines out and creates Sabbath time and temple space. You see, the nations bringing glory into it, that's not going to happen after the final judgment. The gates don't need to be opened then. See, the gates are open. In the next chapter it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let him who hears come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. So the invitation is there. If the gates are open and people are invited to come in, that means that Jerusalem is now, not after the last judgment. Then nobody's going to be converted after the last judgment. It's too late. Gates are closed then. So, does that mean again that Christians are in continual Sabbath time and continual temple space? Well, yes, it does in a general sense, but again, not in the special sense. And if that sounds very complicated to you, just realize that you already live this way. You see, there have been debates about the meaning of the Sabbath back and forth throughout all of church history. But throughout all of church history, people have kept the Sabbath pretty much the same. See, you live practically in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity, but nobody here understands the doctrine of the Trinity. Some of us understand it a bit more than others, but nobody exhaustively penetrates the doctrine of the Trinity. And yet we live by it, we assume it in everything we do. We assume that people are going to be like us and yet different from us. And that assumes the doctrine of the Trinity. Now you live this way, you live alternating between times of prayer and times of work. You live that way. You live with special Sabbath times and general other kinds of time. Well, what does this mean about the New Covenant age? It explains a number of passages in the Bible. Paul talks about not observing days anymore and Sabbaths and meats and things like that being canceled. Well, that's true in the sense that wherever Christ is, there the Sabbath is. And when you have the reality, you don't need the type. So in a general sense, that's true. And yet in a special sense, we do still observe days because we still live in the first creation. I'd like to expand on this in detail, but we're going to have to stop in a couple of minutes. But let me see if I can put the gist of it out. Jesus Christ is in a resurrection body living in a new creation. He's in continual Sabbath. He's in continual temple. Now, you and I have experienced the first resurrection, and we live by the power of the new creation. And in our hearts, we are in continual Sabbath, and we're in a continual temple. But you and I have not experienced the resurrection of the outer body, nor has this world undergone the transfiguration into the new heavens and the new earth. This is still the first world, and we're still in our first body. And characteristic of the first world is an alternation between work and rest, an alternation between light and darkness. And we're still living in that world, so we have to live according to the rules of that world. Now, in principle and in essence, we are in a continual Sabbath, because Christ is and he's in our hearts. That's the essence of it. 
But in the manifestation of it, I hate to use this language, but we're stuck with something like this. In the manifestation of it, how we live, we alternate between Sabbath time and non-Sabbath time, between work and rest, between special worship and general activities. Because we're still in a first creation body that needs rest, we're still in a first creation world that needs Sabbath years, we still have a first creation cultural mandate to perform, which means we can't worship all the time. We're commanded to stop worshiping. You know, at the end of the Mass, the priest stands up and says, Go, the Mass is over. Do you know that? Ite, Misa S. He says, Get out of here, the Mass is over. That's a command to the people. What that means is, okay, worship has been done, get back to work. We don't use the Roman Mass because it has bad associations. But that goes way back before the perversions of the Roman Church came along. We still have the cultural mandate to perform. We still have the first creation task. And so the way you formulate this theologically is we live in the old creation by the power of the new creation. We perform the old covenant tasks by the power of the new covenant. We live in an old covenant time, alternating light and darkness, alternating Sabbath days and non-Sabbath days. We live in that time by the power of the essence of continual Sabbath time. Now that means that the New Testament church has a certain amount of flexibility. The church could choose to have sacraments on other days besides Sunday. If we were living in a culture which was completely pagan and they had holidays three days out of the month, the church could, as a temporary measure, decide to have worship on those days, and those would be Sabbath days. And what would make them Sabbath days is the special presence of Christ on those days when the church had the sacrament. But as Christianity takes over that culture, obviously it's going to accommodate to the Bible pattern, because the pattern is for our good. The Sabbath was made for man. It was made for the good of man in his first creation body, and we still live in that first creation body. We still labor, and therefore we still need to rest. So some conclusions. First of all, we still need places for special worship. We still need houses for God. These are not absolutely necessary. If you live in Soviet Russia and you have to worship in the woods, okay. But by and large, the church has set up houses for God. Now, you run into people who don't like that. They want to worship in homes. They don't want to have a special building. But they're failing to understand that as long as we live in this world, there needs to be a place where people come together. And the pattern is set out in the Bible. Secondly, we still need times for special worship, Sabbath times. Again, if you live in Soviet Russia and they force you to work for eight days in a row and then they give everybody a day off, those times may flex somewhat until you take over. But ordinarily, these would be in the one in seven pattern set out in the Bible because that's the way we were told to live. Third point, since we still live in the first creation with bodies of the first creation, as much as we can, we ought to keep the first creation pattern. It was given for our good, the point I just made. One in seven pattern. Now I want to make just a couple of more comments about the relationship between worship and life. All of this comes out of Haggai 2, doesn't it? <laughs> A few years ago, there was an article published called Pies, Docks, and Kipes. Pietists, Doctrinalists, and Kyperians. And the author made a point that in the Reformed world today, some people are pietists. They spend all their time trying to have a warm relationship with Jesus. 
Some are doctrinalists. They spend all their time trying to get the doctrines just right. And they think that the answer to society is to get the doctrines right and everything will be fine. The pietists believe that the answers to all of our problems are to get everybody having a warm relationship with Christ. And then there are what he called Kuyperians, and they emphasize the cultural mandate and moral obedience in all of life, social action. And he says, what we need is to have all three of these things together in one package. I mean, we should have a warm relationship with Christ, we should have social action, we should have true doctrine. But unfortunately, what this article completely misses is you can't have any of these things unless you have the central thing. And in the Bible, the central thing is public, formal, corporate worship. Public, formal, corporate worship in the special presence of God. That sets the pace for all the rest of life. And all of culture flows out of worship. Characteristics of special worship flow out into general life activities. Special life general life. And the Bible sets forth a kind of a rhythmic dance for life, and this is it. On the first day, God comes with a prophetic word, prophetic word that tells us what to do. That's the first day. And Adam was created on the sixth day of the week, and the next day, which was his first day, was the Sabbath. And the prophetic word comes on the first day of the week. And we have our Sabbath, or Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. The prophetic word. Then there are six kingly days, the prophetic word, and then the kingly activities, dominion. So you come into the special presence of God and you get the prophetic word, which tells you what to do. And then you go out of his special presence, but continuing in his general presence, and you perform the six days of kingly work. And then you come back on the seventh day, the last day, for a word of priestly evaluation priestly evaluation and judgment. All of your works, along with yourself, are put on the altar, and God judges them for good or ill. A word of priestly evaluation. So you start with the prophetic word, you have the kingly activities and obedience, and then you have the priestly evaluation. Now that is the rhythm of the entire Bible. The Bible starts with a prophetic word and ends with a priestly evaluation. We've seen that that's the way the Bible is always written. God comes with a word of command and promise. People obey or disobey, and God comes with a curse or a bless, a judgment. But that's the general rhythm of life, and that's what the Sabbath day alternating with six working days is all about. Now, in the Old Testament, the prophetic and the priestly things were separated. There was a synagogue in every city, and there were Levites to teach the people the prophetic word. And so the prophetic aspect was decentralized. But the priestly aspect was centralized in the temple. You have to get that because most people are mistaken on that point. They think that all of worship was centralized in the Old Testament at the temple. That's not true. Acts 15 says Moses from ancient times has those who teach him in every city. Leviticus 23.2 says that every Sabbath day there was to be a holy convocation. The prophetic work of teaching the word went on every Sabbath day in many places, there were houses of God, churches, throughout Israel from the beginning, or synagogues from the beginning. Ezra didn't start the synagogue. He may have reformed it, but it was supposed to be there from the beginning. The prophetic aspect of teaching the word was decentralized, but the priestly aspect of evaluation and sacramental worship was centralized in the temple. Now, in the New Covenant, that also has been decentralized, because we don't have the temple anymore. So... Now, the synagogue, which is this, is also the temple. 
and the prophetic aspect of teaching and the priestly aspect of being judged by God and eating the sacrifice. Remember, after the sacrifice was made, it was eaten. Now, the sacrifice was made 2,000 years ago, but we're still eating it. The sacrificial aspect is also decentralized and is in every place. So they're put together. Now, that means the church has usually done something like this. We have a need for a more formal temple type of worship with the sacrament and a need for somewhat less formal synagogue Bible teaching, the prophetic aspect. But we still have that dance of life. That's where we're going to have to stop now, where we come into the presence of God and receive the prophetic word. We're sent out to do our tasks, and then we come back on the Sabbath day to get the word of priestly evaluation. And as long as we live in this world, that continues to be the pattern. So, in summary, the essence of the Feast of Tabernacles was to be in the presence of Christ, and we fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles in sacramental worship because that is where he is specially present with us. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.